Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Being Spider-Man is so easy. I fight a few bad guys. Quick break for chai with my my auntie. I love chai tea. What did you just say? Chai tea? Chai means tea. You're saying tea tea. Yes, there are a lot of new spider people in Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, the sequel to the 2018 animated hit. Spider people, spider pets, spider things, this one's got it all. That review, plus our Sight and Sound Top 100 Blind Spots Marathon, takes us to 60s era Taiwan. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Peer pressure, Josh, rival gangs, school and family conflict. No, it's not the Spider Verse this week on Film Spotting, it's the Yangaverse. Well, that just makes me realize I've seen way more MCU films and Spider-Man specifically films than I have Edward Yang films. And so I should probably just resign now. Yes, probably should. But what we lack in the number of films from Edward Yang we've seen, we make up for in the running time. Perhaps. Edward Yang films (laughs) that we've seen. Later in the show, we'll wrap up our sight and sound marathon with Edward Yang's film, A Brighter Summer Day from 1991, a movie that was named the 78th best film of all time by critics in last year's sight and sound poll. We will also have a little bit of Cannes Film Fest talk, the award winners, and we'll chat about the best ever performances in a Wes Anderson film. But first, if you ever thought it would be cool to have a pregnant spider hero who rides a motorcycle... Across the Spider-Verse is the movie for you. I'll take it from here. Miles, being Spider-Man is a sacrifice. You have a choice between saving one person and saving every world. (gasps) Send me home. I can't do that. I can do both! Spider-Man always... Not always. What about Uncle Ben? If not for Uncle Ben, most of us wouldn't be here. Can't stop me now! Coincidence spotting is probably more your territory than mine, Adam. You know, making connections between seemingly disconnected titles we discuss on an episode or on back-to-back shows. But I'm going to try to play that game here and see if you're on board with this one. At the top of the show, you did already hint at the similarities between Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, the animated sequel to the truly wonderful 2018 film, and Edward Yang's A Brighter Summer Day from 1991, which we'll discuss later in the show. Across the Spider-Verse finds Miles Morales at 15, struggling to juggle all the identities he wears at that formative age. He's a son, he's a student, a friend, and yes, the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man of Earth 1610. Think I have that right? I really hope I have that right. In a brighter summer day, we meet Sir, a quiet middle schooler also trying to figure out who he is, who he wants to be, 
and who he will be allowed to be in 1960s Taiwan as an immigrant kid in a neighborhood with rival gangs. Maybe we'll get into a detailed discussion of how Miles and Sir are both similar and different, Adam. I'd argue there's a moment in Across the Spider-Verse where Miles comes face to face with Sir. Maybe that's something for spoilers. But for now, I'm wondering if A Brighter Summer Day informed your viewing of Across the Spider-Verse at all. Although we both loved 2018's Into the Spider-Verse, we were very down on the last MCU Spidey installment, No Way Home, which had a multiverse premise that this new Spider-Verse somewhat shares. So did Across the Spider-Verse need to prove itself to you? And did it help at all to think of it as a comic book version of A Brighter Summer Day? I would be lying if I said I made that connection or I was really thinking about A Brighter Summer Day as I was watching Across the Spider-Verse, Josh, despite the fact that I had just finished watching A Brighter Summer Day about two hours before I stepped into the theater to see Spider-Verse. And I will talk probably here in a moment about how that affected or impacted my viewing of this new film. But you're absolutely right. The connections are there. I think even about how Chaucer in A Brighter Summer Day effectively has to wear a uniform. He kind of has his own costume. He's almost always wearing that This is true. all tan school outfit and how he fits into that or doesn't fit into that is something that movie is really wrestling with in addition to all of the expectations and the confinement that all of the people around him, including his parents, seem to want to impose on him. So it's absolutely there. I'll really blow your mind, though, with the coincidence spotting and mention here that I'd also watched Lynch Oz earlier in the day, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. And that movie devotes significant time to the influence of The Wizard of Oz, not only on David Lynch's work, but on so much of American cinema. I had that in my head watching Spider-Verse, Josh, because if you think about it, it is kind of another Dorothy story. Substitute Brooklyn for Kansas and substitute the multiverse and this spider society that he travels to. Yeah, for yeah, Ma. this one for sure. We won't we won't go too much down that path. As I said, I watch all of these yesterday. We did just see Spider-Verse last night. So we're recording about 12 hours after seeing it. I think that qualifies as still processing. Sure. <laughs> And what I'd process if afforded the time, and I'll try to process with you, is how much I was aware of a generational slash cultural divide while watching the film. And I wonder hmm. if you experienced it as well. But how exhilarating, not not confounding or, or distancing that was. And here's where A Brighter Summer Day comes into play. I got so in-tuned and entrenched into that film's rhythm and it's slower pace that to come into this film, yeah. it's kinetic pace right off the jump. It really was a jolt. Then you add in the fact that I did not revisit Into the Spider-Verse, remember very little about it. And I had to then get up to speed on Gwen Stacy and her relationship to Miles. And all of that set me back a little bit as well. And then at the risk of sounding incredibly out of touch, we saw a promotional screening where critics were in attendance, but also it seemed as if they had found all of the biggest Spider-Man fans on the planet. Mm -hmm. And there were so many people, including the 20-something woman next to me, who were experiencing this movie on a level I simply 
couldn't compete with. Certain movie lines, certain visual cues, mainly characters yes. popping up, inhabiting this multiverse that they were so enthusiastically happy to see. I assume, Josh, they're from a combination of the comics and video games. I'm not sure it was mostly lost on me, but here's where I'll try in my still processing to get a little deep with it and emphasis on trying. I'm not going to suggest or don't hold me here to saying anything that's actually profound. There are plenty of movies trying to reckon with the times we are living in. Few do so as effortlessly and imaginatively as Across the Spider-Verse does. And what I mean there is I'm thinking about conversations swirling around us in art, but just in everyday life around identity and the reliance on social media and these different generational rifts and other technology, AI, how that seems to be something we're all thinking about every day. This movie traffics in those ideas without stopping to explain any of it. There are no cliffs notes. The characters just speak the ideas, speak the language of these ideas fluently. When they even at one point talk about seeing the future, they're suggesting that there are certain outcomes and we know what those outcomes are, or we feel confident we know what those outcomes are. They even say things like, that's what the data models say. <laughs> it's not that clunky, but or at least it didn't feel that clunky to me in the moment. But there's this understanding that even in this fantasy world of multiverses and zillions of spider people, in this grounded universe of Miles Morales and Gwen Stacy, the world they inhabit, AI and all of these different things we can do with data, they can't predict the future. They can analyze historical data sets and they can predict a very likely outcome. They're probably right more often than not, but it's still not a guarantee. These characters aren't seeing into the future. And I'm pointing this out and I'm making this distinction, not because I'm remotely some authority on this and I want my movies to talk about it correctly. No, it's it's about how organically this film seems to be tapping into something that is real and vital, while at the same time being a really fun Spider-Man movie. It's so fun. And you're right. They take all those elements you've just been discussing as a given. It's part of the world. Mm -hmm. Here's how it would appear in this world specifically. And it makes sense in this world, but they don't dwell on it. It's not the MacGuffin. It's not the plot driver. It's not the, the thematic, the pounded thematic mm -hmm. idea at all. It's there. It feels natural to be there. It's interesting that it's there. And it's also in our world too. So that is how we can relate to it. You're so right about the audience. I got there quite early and the line just waiting to get in. Again, this is a promotional slash press screening. So the publicists are doing their jobs, finding fans to come into the theater so that they can experience it, spread the word. And yeah, sure. Influence us, right? They do this for horror movies. They do this for comedies. I get it. But man, I've been to tons of these over the years. And this was one of the most enthusiastic promotional screenings I've seen in terms of the fans there. It could be generational. Um, it could just be they're living in different pop culture corners than we're living. I definitely felt, you know, the generational thing in maybe some of the soundtrack choices, which as in the first film works so well, so mm -hmm. electric, but these are not artists that I know intimately. Um, but I am sure that other generations of fans watching the movie uh, do pick up on that right away. But I think, you know, going back to the pop culture corner thing, 
it's what you said, just knowing some of these characters who appear from the comic books or from the video games or from limited TV series that barely got a chance at life, but have a certain fandom who will recognize a character from that. So yeah, I think all of that is, and and this is maybe sounding like the sort of stuff that we hate when it's fan service in a bad way, but really here, I think it works. It does function as fan service to a degree, but there's another reason for all that. There's another reason we're meeting all these spider people, and it ties to what I did find to be a resonant thematic idea is that all of the spider people have suffered in some way. It's part of the character that they share, even though they're Mm -hmm. distinct individuals, that pain is part of their universal experience. And then the movie explores, how do you respond to that pain? Do you respond by passing it along? Do you respond by helping others out who have experienced it? And this is something maybe we can return to because it gets a little bit more into the plot, but that's why having all these spider people, I think really did work for me, even though I didn't say, Oh, I know that, you know, Spider-Man from this comic book, or it didn't give me that thrill, but it gave me an emotional and thematic thrill. And the fact that it's working on both of those levels is a credit to the, to the level of filmmaking going on here. Um, now to return to just briefly, because for those who are not following us along on our marathon, we don't want to spend too much time on this, but in context of a brighter summer day, I did find a lot of similar, and this is part of the generational thing too, emotional contours, not only about these questions of identity, but how about, Adam, the presence of parents in both mm-hmm. films? I think across the Spider-Verse, even if you are of a parent generation, you are going to get as much out of this emotionally as if you are a teenager who's identifying with Miles Morales. So much time is spent on Miles' relationship with his parents. They get many scenes of their own trying to process Mm -hmm. what it means that their kid is lying to them. How much of Sears life is lying to his parents and what are, what can the parents detect? What do they know and not really want to know. So they pretend they don't know. I think there are similar things like that going on. The volatility of having a teenager in your house, whether it's a teenager struggling with real world issues, like in a brighter summer day or fantastical comic book book issues, like across the Spider-Verse, both of these movies get the emotions of that experience. So right. Not only from the teen's perspective, which we've been through, but from the parents perspective, which we're living through right now, I found this movie and I didn't revisit into the Spider-Verse. I, thought that that had definitely a lot of emotional beats and tones to it and was rich in that way. But I found across the Spider-Verse much deeper in the exploration Mm -hmm. of that. Um, And maybe it's just being of a generation that's apparent, it resonated with me more. But man, was this thing hitting some wonderful notes of authenticity about the parenting and the teen experience within the context of, as you said, this incredibly kinetic, at times overwhelming visual audio experience that has a clarity to it. I'm not complaining about that. The Mm -hmm. ones that overwhelm me in a bad way don't have the clarity that Across the Spider-Verse has. Yeah, it's a matter of that authenticity, as you said. And when you have filmmakers here and artists involved who are exploring these ideas as intelligently as these filmmakers are talking both about Lord Miller and Edward Yang. In this case, we have to be the only show that's comparing these two films too. I love it, but it's so there they're doing it in a way that then makes it pardon the word universal. There is a universality to it, whether or not it is this multiverse and this completely made up heightened world or it's 1960s era Taiwan. And it does come back to what you said, Josh, about how the parents here 
aren't just antagonists, which is something we could expect. Even if we empathize with them or maybe even sympathize with them, we absolutely see their perspective in this type of film. It's still very easy to see them as just opposing forces to the journey of the main character or just to the main character. That's not the case here because we do get to spend the time we spend with those parents understanding them and their identities and their concerns and their longings. And that happens even in a brighter summer day as well. Those few moments, there aren't many necessarily spread over the course of the film, but the ones we get are very powerful and are very detailed and emotionally nuanced, the exchanges between Mm -hmm. the mother and father. So I think that all adds up. And for this film to take the different points of view that it does, not only Miles, but his parents, but Gwen's, this is almost a co-headlining film. Yeah. This is the first 20 minutes, maybe are to Gwen. Yeah. And, and you get the sense at the end, I don't think this is a spoiler. I guess you'll have to tell me, Josh, for the fact that it's just part one. I didn't know that going in, that me like either. Dune, we were getting it to be continued. But that is the case here. I'm sure we'll get even more. We'll see those storylines converge even more than they do here. But it really does feel like their film, their film together, both Miles and Gwen, and not only how their relationship comes together, but how all these different ideas and worldviews eventually might collide. And you talked about the grief. I did want to get into that a little bit in terms of what unifies these stories. I had forgotten within to the Spider-Verse, I was sure that we didn't review that on the show. And we didn't. We didn't have a full review of it. I don't know what right. the reason was. I thought it was because I was gone and you probably reviewed it with someone else. Turns out, actually, I just gave it a recommendation on the show and you hadn't seen it that week. It's a movie I really like. I think this movie is much, much better. But what really stuck with me then and what I discussed on the show was how that movie was about characters who all seemed pretty locked in to their worldviews, and they were clinging to it to the detriment of their families or to their relationships, really to society. And how that then translate into this, this meta aspect of the way we consume these films and these stories, it's all these stories. It's very easy for us as viewers to get locked in to a certain worldview and have a certain set of expectations. And want to cling to those. Into the Spider-Verse showed us that the the myths and the heroes we've created are important, but they're mutable. They have to be. This sequel inventively and thrillingly continues that evolution. And I think here again, Josh, it's the way it goes about it. It's not only the strides it takes, some of the innovation here in terms of the animated approach, the way they've brought all of these different universes to life and given them a distinct identity, but it's it's the language. It's incorporating the idea of canon into the fabric of yeah. the movie is something I loved. So they can challenge the idea of canon, that there is rigidity, that things must align and adhere to a certain way of being to a certain approach. The movie 
subverts all of that or makes us question all of that while also acknowledging a certain fondness for the canon. It acknowledges that that's what makes narratives narratives, what keeps us coming back to them time and time again over generations and centuries is the rigidity, are those common threads, those foundational elements. How that movie weaves all of those together becomes, in the way only this movie can and should be, a very meta experience. It becomes about the collision of all those different stories and ideas. Meta, but not cheap. And a point of contrast might be helpful here. Think about all the jokes that are made about Bruce Wayne's parents, the scene Mm -hmm. in the alley with Bruce Wayne's parents. And I think those can be overblown. I've, I've found revisiting those in most Batman films to be emotionally resonant in the way this film explores what is called a canon event, the loss of a loved one who is from one of these spider people, right? But a lot of times, or not a lot of times, in some of those Bruce Wayne alley scenes, it does feel like they're checking a box or it's there for stylistic reasons. It almost feels obligatory. What is happening here, and I'm going to give a visual example too, because it's aesthetically rich as well, is it is much more tied into what that means as an emotional experience for these characters and thematically for this film particularly or other films as a whole. We get this point where Miles has been introduced to the spider society. He's at this other world where they all live and is told canon events are the connections that bind our lives together, the mm-hmm. spider people. And this points to your technology AI comment, because somehow they're allowed to visualize almost like a hologram, Mm -hmm. a row of recurring spider people across properties, across, you know, some even I recognize, some I've never heard of. They're all in the same pose, leaning over, cradling a loved one, an Uncle Ben, say, um, a father figure who has died, who they have failed to save. And the point is that this is a crucial, again, canon event that cannot be changed. Um, And this is part of the experience. And in a way, it's a necessary part of the experience of being a spider hero. And so we've already talked about the emotional resonance to that. I think they give it its due and its time. So it's not cheap and also find a way to ingeniously visualize it using the animation. Man, that is incredibly powerful. When you see that row, the doubling down, it just goes down the loss, the loss, the loss, the loss. And um, I think it works beautifully, even though it's a very it's a moment full of grief as well. Yeah, I agree. I think you mentioned fan service earlier. I think that there are many moments in this film that different people will have different opinions about. Maybe they think certain moments go too far. They're there to be a little bit obligatory. I didn't have that reaction as much, but that might be tied to the fact that I didn't know what I was supposed to be reacting to, as we noted earlier, whereas lots of people in the theater were having a different experience with the film. Now, obviously, I know about the Spider-Man pointing meme, and that's not a surprise when we when we get that. Right. I think even the first movie gave us that on some level here. I think it works in a clever way. I think if you're going to give us some of those obligatory fan moments, then they have to be they have to be funny or they have to do something new with it. They have to transform it in some way. And real fan service should be serving the fan. And the way to do that is, and I say this as someone who, as I've noted now, I don't know that you can even call me 
a Spider-Man fan anymore. I grew up as one, but I'm a little disillusioned with a lot of these properties, to use your word, and that is what they are. I'm a little disillusioned with some of those recently, and also I'm clearly not consuming Spider-Man the way this new generation, younger generations are consuming it. But if you mine these narratives, you mine these visual touchstones and these emotional through lines, if you mine them in a way that is thoughtful and earnest or funny, then then you really have something. And that's, that's the, the trick of this film for Lord and Miller and the inventive but the genuinely affectionate regard for the material, but not affection that crosses over into a sort of reverence. Mm-hmm. That's one thing you can't say about these films is that they are they are too reverential, but I think they have just the right amount. That that alchemy of of reverence mixed with the devilish subversion that they employ is what makes these films something special. I want to just make one more quick note about the visuals because this is an incredibly gorgeous movie in so many ways in how it moves actually in the action sequences, but just the design of it. And we should probably note the directing team here, Joaquin Dos Santos, Kemp Powers, Justin K. Thompson, I'm sure guiding a massive army of artists behind them. The credits you mentioned, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, also Dave Callaham getting a screenplay credit here. But these visuals, just the way they allow each world we visit to have such a distinction, you touched on this. Maybe my favorite is the one we spend that opening 15 or so minutes with Gwen, how there is a painterly watercolor effect to the backgrounds of the cityscapes, but also even the interior spaces. And I think of this being used most effectively in a scene where she's having a confrontation with her father. Mm -hmm. We explore her parental relationship as well. And those background walls, which again, have these watercolor tones and also textures start to drip as their argument gets more heated and it's almost as if the walls are weeping. I, I, and this is return, this motif they return to later in an even more effective way. That's just one example of the time and care that is spent in envisioning the distinctions among all these worlds, even as it's a push and pull. Finally, the main point is the common experiences these spider people are having and what that means, but they're also allowing them their individual aspects and qualities and representing that by the very worlds they're set in, in some just draw dropping animation. Yeah. And I think you also have to appreciate, of course, the voice work here. So Not good. only Shamik Moore as Miles Morales and Haley Steinfeld as Gwen Stacy, we, we could go on. I know when Into the Spider-Verse came out that Brian Tyree Henry deservedly got a lot of credit for his performance. I've always been a Jake Johnson fan. I love him as Peter B. Parker. Jason Schwartzman is a new addition here as the villain and brings everything to it that you would expect Schwartzman to bring, where you kind of think he's diabolical and want him stopped, but you're kind of rooting for him in a weird way, <laughs> too. Issa Rae as Jessica Drew slash Spider-Woman and I could go on and on, including Daniel Kaluuya showing up. Definitely so didn't, good. Didn't recognize that until I got to the credits. I didn't want to ask you in terms of anything you might still be 
wrestling with in terms of disappointments or things that didn't quite work for you about this film. I think the only one I have right now is tied to Oscar Isaac as Miguel O'Hara. He's Mm. Spider-Man 2099. And I love the performance. I'm not sure that Oscar Isaac is capable of being anything but brilliant, no matter what he's doing. And I think he gives that character real depth. I think the movie perhaps stacks the deck a little bit too much against him Mm. in terms of how it visually portrays him. Also, where we see his character go in terms of his, let's say, obsessive quest to keep things rigid. I I wish that the movie had, I suppose, allowed for even more room for us to see that character's point of view. And it's there. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, it's no. there. But I just wonder if it it pushed it just a little bit too far in terms of making him one of those antagonists to the main character. I think that's fair. And I think it's almost where this idea to expand does not work. As I was saying, having all of these spider people is not just fan service. It's to a purpose. I think it works. But I almost wonder if they could have chosen either the character of O'Hara, the Oscar Isaac character, or Schwartzman's The Spot. Now, they serve very different purposes in terms of the actual plot. So maybe that wouldn't have been possible. But on that end, having two antagonists, the spot kind of falls away for a long time as well. And I think that is when O'Hara comes to focus. But I don't know that we get enough of either of them for it to be as rich of an ingredient of the film as it could be. We talk all the time about comic book movies needing great villains, right? And I think think they've got two good ones here. And maybe if they'd lost one of them, it would allow the other to be a great one. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is currently playing in wide release. If you see it, and we figure most of you are going to, let us know what you thought about our takes. You agree or disagree? Feedback at filmspotting.net. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Why would Lynch be that absorbed with The Wizard of Oz? Did he watch The Wizard of Oz on a perfect day, at the perfect time as a child, and it sort of baked into his subconscious? That's from the trailer for Lynch Oz, a new documentary about the influence of The Wizard of Oz on the work of director David Lynch, a case the film makes it should be noted without much help from Lynch himself. Now, Adam, considering how little Lynch himself has spoken on the subject or really any subject when it comes to his work, how enlightening was Lynch slash Oz? Yeah, I maybe had somewhat different expectations for what the film would be just based on the very brief description I read, I didn't pay attention to the fact that there were six different essays here. And I did have this thought in mind that somehow the director was going to get David Lynch to talk about, to espouse all of his thoughts and theories on The Wizard of Oz and its impact. But that is definitely not the case. 
And that's probably a strength of the film in addition to just being the only practical reality. Lynch is obviously all over this film, but David Lynch himself is very rarely on screen explaining anything. And as you noted, that's not something we should expect from David Lynch. He's just not that type of filmmaker. And he's certainly a filmmaker who taps into his unconscious in a way, and the movie deals with this in a way that few filmmakers do, seems to be translating that unconsciousness directly to the screen. So how does even David Lynch try to make sense of it all? Maybe he doesn't. These are the mysteries. These are the things that we'll we'll never know and we don't need to know. We only see him in this film via a few Q&As where he has a stray comment or two. Usually he's being elusive or from his own social media feed. Otherwise, this film was built around six different essays and six different personal essayists. One of them is Rodney Asher, who made the film Room 237 about Kubrick and all the various theories surrounding the, the meaning and making of The Shining mining that film for all of its clues and and connections. Lynch Oz is doing something similar with Lynch's entire filmography. One distinction is that the influence of Oz on Lynch is provable and undeniable. Even if you just looked at Wild at Heart, which evokes that movie and references that movie in so many direct ways. But you can't walk away from Lynch Oz the way you can walk away from Room 237 and just say, Well, I don't buy any of that. (laughs) You could, and that's not a negative against or a mark against Room 237. It's just that that movie is inherently built around these theories, and mileage may vary in terms of how much validity you want to attach to them. Here, we know it, and we see it with our own eyes, but that also doesn't mean everything that's revealed or all those connections that are made are indisputably true and accurate either. There is still plenty of mystery here, including fundamentally the enigmatic quality of Lynch's work and the unexplainable impact that movies can have on artists, especially, but all of us at a young age. And David Lowry is one of the filmmakers, director of Pete's Dragon and A Ghost Story. He's one of the directors here who really dives into that. He's one of the essayists. I think the movie even wisely concludes with him. And I think he really neatly balances some rigor, some more academic rigor in terms of looking at Lynch's work, but also tying it to himself and his own experience as an artist. And one of the things Lowry covers that other essayists do as well is the way Lynch is rarely interested in just dropping homages to Oz into his work. No, it manifests itself in ways that even he surely isn't conscious of. He is tapping into this unconscious attraction, obsession, whatever it is, whatever he has with the Wizard of Oz, whatever indelible market left on him as a young boy, it is now in his bloodstream. It is, it is essential to his identity. You cannot strip away David Lynch without stripping away that part of him, Oz is, is that closely attached. And you asked whether or not the movie was enlightening. I think some essays are more enlightening than others. I wouldn't begrudge anyone who says maybe the movie could have gone even deeper. But I also think that's just how rich this subject is, especially if you are a David Lynch fan like I am. The movie didn't 
just offer some new details to consider about the director's work and Oz's influence on American cinema, it fired the synapses for me too. And it got me thinking about art and the movies I love and why I love them and how they've become part of my DNA. That was the the real takeaway or the thing that made me appreciate the film most. It would be one thing to just sort of go through it as a catalog of all the times Lynch did this, that he invoked Oz, that he made a reference to Oz. The film does want to get at something that's harder to pin down and intangible than that. And I think it mostly succeeds. It sounds like, you know, you learned a lot or thought a lot about Lynch. Did you learn much about The Wizard of Oz itself? Is there time given to that aspect too? Yeah, there is. I mean, in terms of what I learned about it, this kind of nicely ties in with my last point, actually. It's not so much about specific tidbits or different information I picked up about the film that I hadn't considered before. It's more what it what it provoked. Seeing Lynch's films juxtaposed with the images that we see from The Wizard of Oz and the ideas that some of these essayists bring to light, it made me think more deeply about The Wizard of Oz. It made me think about things, Josh, like and I know that there are these theories out here. I want to say even back in intro to film analysis, we talked about different types of textual readings. And The Wizard of Oz is one of those examples everyone can point to and and go, well, this is a movie fundamentally about adolescence. It's about that transition, the the scary transition into puberty and adulthood. And that's that's really what the whole film's about. Okay, yeah, those elements are absolutely there. But also just thinking about ideas like I'm writing down in my notes while I'm watching this movie, like original sin and the notion that that Dorothy think about how Dorothy lands in Oz and the first thing she's done is killed someone she didn't even know mm-hmm. she's responsible for taking the life of someone who's whose name includes the word wicked <laughs> so that that may let you off the hook a little bit as the person who just inadvertently killed this person. Well, they were bad. They probably had it coming. But you still have to sit back for a moment and think about what that must have done to the psyche of that character to be responsible for that. And so just now recontextualizing Dorothy as someone who the first thing that happens to her when she lands there is she's responsible for something that she's never experienced in her life and that really is at the the basis or is one of the most fundamental things a human can do in terms of doing something wrong, taking another life. She, she does that. The whole movie then, the backdrop of the whole rest of the film, everything about it changes when you think about the journey she's on, not just, not just physically, but emotionally. Well, that's working a little bit the other direction, right? That's seeing Oz through the lens of Lynch. Yes. So, yeah, interesting. Lynch Oz is currently playing in limited release. This is another one I think that's just opening in New York right now, but hopefully will expand to more cities and more screens in the near future. If you see the film, I'd love to hear your thoughts about Dorothy murdering witches, original sin, David Lynch, you name it, feedback at filmspotting.net. Next week here on the show, it is June, which means it's Pride Month, and we had been kicking around different topics for the past month or so. We also got an email from a longtime listener, Alex Grossman in Beverly Hills, who wrote in saying he'd love to hear our top five 
LGBTQ plus romances. And while we think that that's a great topic and worthy of its own top five, we decided that we are going to do a Pride Month themed top five, but we're going to take a little bit more personal approach. Yeah, I think we wanted to be upfront uh, right at the start with a topic like this that both you and I, it's fair to say, this is not been our experience, right? When we think about LGBTQ plus stories, narratives, experiences, it's something that even growing up, but then becoming, you know, a film fan and watching movies, that's how I learned mm-hmm. about that experience largely, not entirely, but, but largely. And so we thought, what if we took the more, I don't know, formative approach, if that's the right word, educational approach, that sounds a little bit dry, but we're thinking about the movies that expanded our world and introduced us to these characters, these experiences, these worlds in a way that we really value and treasure some years on. So these will probably be mostly movies from a number of years ago, but not entirely. This is something I think we'd both say we're continuing to learn about. Um, And so there might be some more recent films, but yeah, it's going to be sort of formative films in this arena for both of us. If you've got picks that are personal for you, we would love to hear those. Email again, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also find us on social at filmspotting or Larson on film. You could also leave us a voicemail, send that audio file, I should say, to feedback at filmspotting.net. We would love to play it on the show. I have in my notes here, Josh, something about a meetup that does not mean anything to me. So I would <laughs> I would love to hear you explain. I, I'm kind of putting the pieces together, but I now turn the mic over to you. I don't know if this meetup's going to happen, Adam, but I'm encouraged by the fact that we've had some far-flung meetups. I think you yes. still hold the distance record, right? Helsinki, was that it? Yeah, I was going to say, this might just happen because I've done it. I put it out there over a decade ago. It was 2008, Josh, and I said, hey, I'm going to be in Finland. I'm going to be in Helsinki for a few days. If there are any listeners there that want to get together, I'd love to grab a drink. And I think four people came to that. So you never know. You never know. And I had a couple of years ago, a good group in Oslo, Norway show up. So obviously we've got, you know, the Nordic region covered for meetups. I'm going to be going South this summer. The high schooler and me, we're going on this Amazon adventure. I'm incredibly excited about that is going to be in Peru. We're mostly going to be in the middle of nowhere with Not much contact with anyone, but turns out on the return, trying to get back home, we do have about a day and a night, I think, to kill in the town of Iquitos, Peru, which is on the Amazon, new to me as well. Uh, But hey, maybe there's a listener or two, three, four, we'll see, who are around. This will be June 28 is the day that would work best Long shot, I realize, but it would be awfully fun as B and I are looking for some things to do while we're waiting for our plane for a day if we could meet up with a couple of listeners in Iquitos, Peru on June 28. So hit us up if that sounds good. Maybe, Josh, they can take you on the walking tour of Fitzcarraldo. Well, when this I think is... of Iquitos, that's what I think about. <laughs> I think about I think about that character, Klaus Kinski's character, saying, I'm going to build an opera in Iquitos it's... and Caruso will open it. It's so funny, too, because I've just been rewatching all the Indiana Jones films. And do you know that Crystal Skull 
that final section is supposed to be set in this exact region. Now, I think it mostly took place on a soundstage with green screen, so that was a little disappointing to revisit. But yeah, it's pretty funny. This is honestly part of the motivation of the trip like this. It's just in my imagination has been fueled by the movies of this part of the world growing up and i've always wanted to try to get down there and actually see what it's like so we're doing that and maybe just maybe meeting a couple of film spotting listeners too so if film spotting listeners are interested if we have some in peru and i will give you a little bit of disappointing news here right now hundreds of thousands of emails going back almost a couple decades in the film spotting inbox and i don't see anything any references to Iquitos or Peru, Josh? No Peru. Okay. Well, at least not Iquitos. I should say, I didn't actually search Peru. I, I have to imagine that at some point over the years, we got an email from someone in Peru, but how close they are, Well, Josh. I mean, I think we're only going to be like a two-hour flight or so from Lima. So come on, it would be worth it for a film spotting meetup. Trust me. Okay. And now that I've searched Peru, I do see multiple names come up, Josh. I think this could happen. I want to hear all about it and what should any aspiring meetup listeners do to meet up? Yeah, I guess they could email the show feedback at filmspotting.net. That'll get to me or find me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Larson on film. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, try to put something together. If you reach out this week over on our sister podcast that you should all be listening to the next picture show. It is part two of their rocket manimal pairing guardians, volume three, with 1932's The Island of Lost Souls with Charles Lawton and Bela Lugosi. Next week, they've got a new pairing. Josh, your number one film of the year so far, You Hurt My Feelings, paired with Nicole Holofcener's second feature, 2001's Lovely and Amazing. So usually they're finding sort of disparate pairings here, finding films from the past that you may or may not immediately think of when you think of the new film. I don't know that The Island of Lost Souls is one that people immediately pull when they think of Guardians 3, for example. Here, they're going back to Holofcener's own filmography. I'm guessing this is a double feature you will be eager to download. Love this, and I think it makes sense to do this sort of pairing because Hall of Centers, I've said many times, one of our most underrated filmmakers, especially looking back at some of her earlier titles. So so this is great. I think people are just going to fall in love with You Hurt My Feelings and hopefully be inspired to revisit some of her other stuff. And yeah, that'll happen with the next picture show, doing an episode on it as well. Your hosts there are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of the next picture show post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. I don't know. You, you, you come here? Okay, with your, maybe your opinion, and you tell me who Samuel was and what we were going through. But what you say is just, uh, it is just a little part of the whole situation, you know. That's the great German actress Sandra Huller in a clip from Anatomy of a Fall, the film that won the Palme d'Or, the top prize at this year's Cannes Film Festival that just concluded on the 26th. We're going to get to some Cannes-related poll results here. But first, let's talk about some of the winners. Anatomy of a Fall is a French courtroom drama directed by Justine Trier. She's only the third woman, Josh, to win the Palme d'Or. But the second since 2021, that was Julia Ducourneau for Titan. Second prize went to Jonathan Glazer's Zone of Interest. Can't wait to see that. Aki Karasmaki, His Fallen Leaves, took the third prize, basically. Best actor went to the veteran Japanese character actor 
Yakusho Koji for his lead performance in the new one from Vin Vendor's Perfect Days. Best Actress to Turkey's Marve Dizdar for her work in Nuri Bilga Jalan's About Dry Grasses. Best Director went to a filmmaker we're going to hear a little bit more about in a minute, who otherwise, I'm ashamed to admit, is unknown to me. Josh Tron Ong Hung for the film The Pot de Few, which David Ehrlich called the most hardcore food porn since Big Night or Babette's Feast and every bit those movies equal. I'm intrigued. Bold, bold words. Do you Have you seen both of those, Adam? Do you have a clear favorite between Babette's Feast or Big Night? I knew you were going to ask me that. And sadly, even having done a top five movies about food many years ago here on the show and getting so many emails from people saying Babette's Feast, where was it on the list? I still haven't been able to catch up with it. Okay. Yeah. I I think, you know, I like Big Night too, but I think that is probably the better one. So yeah, at any rate, to see this film being named in that context is, is pretty impressive. Yeah. Several of the movies we mentioned were options in our recent can-related poll question. A couple weeks back, we asked you, what can 2023 competition film that's not Wes Anderson's Asteroid City are you most excited for? The options that we gave you were About Dry Grasses, Fallen Leaves, Alice Rohrwacher's La Chimera, Todd Haynes, his new one, May, December, Hirokazu Kureda's Monster that did win the Fest Best Screenplay Prize, or you could go with Vim Vendors and His Perfect Days, or Jonathan Glazer's Zone of Interest. And if none of those were within your zone of interest, you could go other and write in your candidate. Josh, how did it come out? Well, there was at least one other vote because 1% went that way. Other than that, a couple bunched here at the bottom. The Rohrwacher film, La Chimera, 3% about dry grasses, 4% and fallen leaves, 5%. Then another couple bunched up. Vim Vendor's Perfect Days received 11% of the vote, while 13% went to Coreda's Monster. Todd Haynes made December there at 16% in second place. But yeah, Glazer's Zone of Interest took this 46% of the vote. Wade McCormick explains why, as much as I look forward to new films from Jaylon, Haynes, and Vendors, it has to be Glazer. Under the Skin is a masterpiece, and his first two films were great, too. Hopefully, it won't be another 10 years before his next movie. Here's Rory Dunn. I have a Paris, Texas tattoo, so Vim Vendors will forever have my vote. Bill Van Zant writes in, 90s me would say Vendors without a second thought. One of my early art house discoveries, Wings of Desire. Far away so close. Buena Vista Social Club. But Carreta is one of my favorite filmmakers working right now. Afterlife, Shoplifters, and Nobody Knows absolutely wrecked me. 90s me carries the day, though. Didn't see that coming. Twist ending here for Bill Van Zant. Vim vendors for the win. Edwin Arnoden is putting out the call. Korsmaki Hive, stand up. We also heard from Sean, who said, People are sleeping on Alice Rohrwacher. Happy as Lazaro, which is on Netflix, is funny, potent, and surreal. So seeing that she's working with Isabella Rossellini feels perfect. I can't wait for this one. Diego shares that sentiment. Rohrwalker's Happy as Lazaro was sublime and rich with stylistic choices. Her films are like fairy tales, minus the fairy. Can't wait for La Camera. And that's another one, Josh. Happy as Lazaro. I remember getting a lot of praise the year it came out. Wasn't one we ended up seeing for the show. I don't think you caught up with it either, or am I wrong? I did see it, uh, you know, in the year-end rush and liked it. I'm not quite as high as, you know, Sam, our producer, loves it, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I did like it, but yeah, 
Others are much higher on it than me. One more comment here from Sam Bass. I voted other because a largely forgotten master of slow cinema, Chan Ang Hung, is back with The Pot of Few, starring Juliette Binoche. He's been gone from the scene for a long time, and I hold out hope that he can recapture the vibe magic of the scent of green papaya and the vertical ray of the sun. Yeah, both of those blind spots for me, and I assume you as well, Josh, a filmmaker we need to keep on our radar. And Indeed. Maybe that new one will be the entree into his work. With that poll, we did exclude Wes Anderson, as we mentioned. To make up for it, we made this new one all about Wes. In anticipation of Asteroid City, which opens in limited release on the 16th, it will expand on the 23rd. We want to know, I can't believe we've never asked this question before, but we couldn't find it. What is your favorite performance in a Wes Anderson movie? Now, this is hard because for it to be a poll question, we have to give you some options and we can't give you 17 different options. We had to narrow it down to the ones that we felt were essential, knowing that across all of his ensembles, even though he works with a lot of recurring faces, there are so many good options to choose from. We had to narrow it down to the ones that felt like you just could not have the conversation without them. This is the Mount Rushmore. Now, I think... I think there are two for sure in here that are on that Mount Rushmore. One more of them might be a little bit debatable, depending on the extent of your fondness for Rushmore. The other one's tough because it does involve Bill Murray. How do you have a Wes Anderson poll? How do you have a Wes Anderson Mount Rushmore without Bill Murray on it? The question is, for what performance? Here's what we ended up going with. Ray Fiennes in Grand Budapest Hotel. Jason Schwartzman will be representing Rushmore. And then Bill Murray, the performance we went with, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, very divisive. Wes Anderson picture. Your other choice is Gene Hackman in The Royal Tenenbaums, unless you want to go other, which I am certain we are going to get plenty of other votes. Yeah, in early responses over on Twitter and Facebook, Ray Fines, not surprisingly to me, does have the lead over Gene Hackman and Jason Schwartzman. Murray, somewhat Incredibly, but maybe not for that movie. Josh is a distant fourth. Some performances that are getting the other vote and deservedly so. Jeffrey Wright in The French Dispatch. So good. And a vote for just about every other performance in a Wes Anderson film from Owen Wilson in Bottle Rocket to George Clooney's voice work in Fantastic Mr. Fox. The conclusion is we agree with you. They're all good. What do you make, Josh, of this poll question? Because you were a little absent in the slack when Sam and I were debating this. So I want to know how you feel about the results. Is this yet another deeply flawed film spotting poll question as it should be? And ultimately, where are you going with your vote? Yeah, I was partly not participating because I was preoccupied with other stuff, but also I saw and I was like, I can't think, I mean, this will just sabotage my whole week if I really take this seriously. So I still haven't sat down and spent a ton of time with it. I'm going to go instinctual here as I like to do with monumental decisions. I think it probably has to be Murray, because you're right, he is the iconic performer, the iconic for me, Wes Anderson performer. And also I happen to really love the life aquatic. I'm yes. on the pro side. Do I think Murray is better in Rushmore? Yes. Do I think he's amazing in life aquatic? Yes. So that's what's going to get my vote here. Interesting, because I could see the case against Murray and Rushmore being, despite the size of the performance in terms of how good it is, the quality of it, it is technically a support yeah, role. Yeah, it is. Schwartzman, and we've gone otherwise with all 
lead performances here. That doesn't mean a lead performance has to be your favorite. I thought you might go with Murray, and I thought you might go with Zisu. Jason Schwartzman and Rushmore is the only one I thought was a little bit of a surprise, but I didn't have a counter when I thought about it. It wasn't like there was another one that came to mind that I said to Sam, oh, you're nuts. You have to include this instead. It did ultimately fit. It comes down to those two that are leading the poll right now, though. And here's what I'll say. Ray Fiennes in Grand Budapest Hotel, especially now that I did revisit that film two or three years ago and adore it. That performance is probably the right answer, but I'm also going to go with my gut here, Josh, making monumental decisions. And I simply love watching Gene Hackman as Royal Tenenbaum (laughs) more. That makes sense. I get it. There's a precision and a perfection to Fiennes, which would justify your choice in that direction. But man... What would the world be like if we didn't have Royal Tenenbaum? Indeed. You can vote in that poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net or over at facebook.com slash filmspotting or on Twitter at filmspotting. A bit of a scene there from Edward Yang's A Brighter Summer Day, the sixth and final film in our Sight and Sound Top 100 Marathon. All six of the films we watched and will have now discussed placed in the top 100 of their once a decade critics poll and all of them, as is usually the case with marathons, that's sort of the endeavor here. They were all blind spots for us. We needed to see all of these films and this marathon provided the forum to do that and to discuss them. In your review of this film, Josh, you wrote there are coming of age stories and then there are personal epics. A brighter summer day counts as the latter. Yeah, maybe we can get into that distinction a little bit. There's just a comprehensiveness and a communal aspect to this that that distinguishes it for me. Yang's 1991 film came in at number 78 on that 2022 sight and sound list. His 2000 film and probably Yang's best known, the other one that I've seen is Yi Yi. That made the list at number 90. Yi Yi was also Yang's final film. He did die fairly young at 59 in 2007. Adam, you're also a fan of Yee Yee. You've seen that too, right? Yeah. One though, I did just catch up with, I think in the past five to 10 years, it was a blind spot for me that I was often ashamed to admit I hadn't seen yet. Yang emerged in the eighties as part of the Taiwanese new wave, along with filmmakers like Ho Shao Shen and Tsai Ming Liang, directors who shared an emphasis on formal experimentation, but also realism. A Brighter Summer Day isn't so much experimental, but it does challenge narrative expectations with its pace and with its mostly static shooting style. This is a coming-of-age film, as we said. Yang here, this is where the personal part that you reference comes in. Yang is evoking the era of his own youth in early 60s Taiwan. I think the movie actually begins in 1959. A note at the beginning of the film explains that the parents we're going to see, many of the characters in this film, their generation were part of a large group of mainland Chinese who fled to Taiwan in the late 40s at the end of the Chinese Civil War. That immigrant identity led to a lot of kids of this time getting caught up in territorial gang activity, complicating the academic ambitions that their parents and society had for them. Over the course of this film's 
almost four hours runtime. A Brighter Summer Day considers this period through the perspective of Xiaosur, a quiet middle schooler played by Cheng Chen as he drifts into delinquency. I will note that that name, Xiaosur, isn't even his his real name. It's actually a nickname. And I think it's it's fitting as we get into some of the details and the larger ideas and themes of this film that he's referenced by where he falls kind of temporarily. His name, his identity is tied to the fact that he's the fourth of five kids. And, and that is sort of just who he is and whether or not he can aspire to be anything more than that or achieve anything more is kind of the film's purview. We were both fans and familiar with Yang's Yi Yi. That film's strength was also in its patient observational approach. Sounds like that approach worked for you here as well. It absolutely did. I was expecting it and appreciative of it, though I will say it took me a while to understand what kind of movie I was watching because Yi is an intimate family domestic drama, and I may be incorrect in this, but I associate that patient observational style with that type of material. And this, A Brighter Summer Day, you could say is the equivalent of the first half of Goodfellas. I mean, in terms you know, of the storytelling and you know, movie I thought about a lot. John, yeah. Yeah. It's it's Yang doing a better version for me of Leone's Once Upon a Time in America. OK. Yeah. The gangster story. That, yeah. Yeah. That evolution of those young kids. Yeah. Spends more time with the kids. So that's good, too. And I think, you know, absolutely in Goodfellas, we have a more exciting uh, maybe that's not the right word, but a livelier filmmaking technique at play probably once a time in america you could say the same thing so that threw me off because i was starting to wonder how serious the dangers were for sir and these other kids and there's a reason for this too is they're on the younger end of these mm -hmm. gangs right they're sort of being recruited at this point he hangs out with a, a pipsqueak friend who's much shorter than him a wonderful performance that i do want to call, call out just quickly the actor there because he is such a delight chi san wang and playing cat cat is his nickname so yeah it's hard to get a, a sense of how dangerous this life is partly because they're so young partly because the violence that they do encounter is mostly off screen or implied mm -hmm. for a while it gets more violent and partly because of this style this observational style which is absolutely a strength because it comes back to that communal aspect that i was talking about so often yang's camera is set back whether we're outside for a street scene or inside for an interior scene that allows the space to be considerable and allows multiple characters to walk in and out of the space, somewhat like a theatrical stage. This is not a stagey movie, but some of the sequences are presented that way where the space is as thoughtfully production designed, mm -hmm. the compositions are as thoughtful so that the characters that can then come in and out. And what that is doing is giving us a portrait of the larger community of which Sir is the central figure. Absolutely. This is his story. This is his experience. Um, but it does open things up then to be wider. And I think Yang's style is crucial to that. It's why that works. And it's also handsomely designed in a way that you don't get bored with it. You're, you're, more than willing to soak up the details within mm -hmm. that frame and wait for the action to occur. 
Absolutely agree. And I think the one scene that really comes to mind, and you're describing how that approach, that technique is employed throughout the entire film, and it really is, but one scene where it's explicit, where I was really thinking about watching a stage play, and you're one degree removed from the characters because the main characters in that scene are watching it. That's what makes it so explicit that they're watching this drama play out. It's that scene late in the film where his brother is getting punished. His older brother is getting punished for having pawned oh, yeah. his mother's watch. And we come to learn a lot of the details behind that and that actually he's taking that punishment for his brother, for Sir. But Sir is out there, I think, with one of his sisters, and he's kind of just sitting on a on a landing, on a on a wall, at the top of the wall, and he's watching, and the way it's lit is it's as if it's its own proscenium. It's it's darkness all around that main window of that household, and it illuminates everything that's happening inside. Yeah. It's this rectangular space, and you're watching all of this play out. The the father just losing his mind and beating the son and the different reactions of the women who are in the room, the mother and the sisters. That That's one where that theatricality immediately came to mind. But of course, when we say that, and I know you're saying this as well, I just want to make it clear for the listener, that isn't to suggest that Edward Yang is just turning the camera on and right. letting events play out, or that there isn't anything inherently cinematic about it. In fact, everything you're saying, those longer shots, the patient framing, the deep focus in the frames, the reliance. When I say long shots, it's not just even so much long takes. It's it's allowing for the space to show these characters, their whole bodies or most of their bodies to see what's happening in the sides of the frame, the backs of the frame. You are paying attention to all of these details. It makes you feel as if you are watching life play out. Mm -hmm. You're watching it unfold. Formally, this movie is doing nothing like Tarkovsky's Mirror. I'm going to go back to that film here from this marathon. It's visually more staid. It's more casually observant, not as avant-garde, certainly not at all avant-garde. But I had a similar experience with both. Mm. Yang's artistry evokes the sensation that you aren't just observing these events unfold, but that you're watching them through his eyes. It's as if the filmmaker was a ghost observing these characters. That's actually how I felt. It was like a John Malkovich being John Malkovich experience, Josh, where the camera feels like a stand-in, not just for Yang. And this character is meant to be a stand-in for Yang. To what degree that's true, I don't know. You understand that this film is personal in the same way we understand another reference for me here was Tree of Life and Terrence Malick. The way we understand that film has to be personal with me really only knowing about Terrence Malick's autobiography that he grew up in Waco around the same time as these characters. That's all I know about Edward Yang as well. So I'm not trying to call on any factual things from his life. Nevertheless, it's so careful in its presentation. It's so in tune to the rhythms of these characters and the nuances and the complexities of everyday life and the dynamics between the family and the family and the neighbors and the family in the school and the family and the different people in the market that they have to deal with every day that you can't watch it and not feel as if it's made by someone who to whatever degree experienced this 
type of life, experienced events very close to this, and is looking back on it now with a certain wisdom. I think he would have been just in his early 40s when this film was made. But I think you need, this film suggests that you may need just that amount of wisdom to be able to look back and really contextualize and process these events and see them as complex and see them as nuanced as they really are, as opposed to the way maybe we think about, especially when we're younger, we think about different major events from our life. And it's easy, almost like in biopic fashion to go, oh, that's yes. the that's the moment that made that character. That's that traumatic moment. That's, that's not really how life is. And I think A Brighter Summer Day, despite the fact that it's reflecting a life that I can't personally relate to in any way. I, I didn't grow up experiencing anything like Edward Yang and these characters did in Taiwan in the 1960s. It still makes it one that is indelibly realized and, and specific and one that I could I could see myself in. This is a helpful film to think about when we're having the nostalgia conversation, I think, because nostalgia can be a good thing, but it can also be saccharine and sweet and overlook and deny things in the way you're talking about, Adam. But the perspective you're describing here, there is definitely a preciousness to it where what Yang is either remembering or inventing from certain aspects of his experiences is held in a precious way. This goes back to me being a little bit adrift at first, wondering how dangerous is this because there were serious things happening, but there was such a, again, not fondness, but clear-eyedness for yes. the little beauties of that time and those mm -hmm. memories as well, even as things became more and more precarious for Seer. It is, it's not like, well, when I was young, things were nice, and then I turned 13 and things got bad. It is way more nuanced than that. There is quiet consideration for how every single day actually passed, what was precious about that day, but also what was dangerous about that day, the same day often. And what has been, this is to your point about him being, if he was in his forties or so, what has been irrevocably lost since then mm -hmm. for him, possibly certainly for where, how this story ends up for some of these characters. And I just think that's an incredibly difficult trick to pull off. I think it takes the somewhat reserved perspective formerly we've been talking about. Um, and it also takes a long running time that we've referenced, you know, to, to allow these, these lives to breathe. You couldn't do this in 90 minutes. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's just an incredible achievement on that front. And just to not scare people away when we keep referencing this somewhat staid formalism, I want to give an example of a movement of the camera that also does what we've been discussing. And this is involving Sir and another major character, Ming, played by Lisa Yang. This is the teen girlfriend of a leader of one of the gangs who Sir befriends, and they grow closer as the movie proceeds. Well, about midway through, a traumatic event occurs. I won't spoil for both of them, but mostly for her. And he chases her down the school hallway. And we're watching this again from the stage perspective, as if we're in the audience and the camera is tracking a parallel to them, I think, from from right to left as he chases her. He's yelling after her, trying to get her attention. Finally, she stops, turns around, and he yells at, and I want to follow this up with a performance or a discussion of Chang Chen's performance, but he yells at her, don't be afraid. You have to be brave. I'm with you. 
You needn't be afraid. And proceeds this way, but where they've stopped is in front of the school band, 30 kids rehearsing their instruments in this din, this blare. It's overwhelming. We get a nice little comic moment, right, where the band stops playing and all of a sudden he's screaming and everyone in the school can hear her. This otherwise very quiet kid professing these deep emotions. And then what? The band starts up again. So it's funny, but I think it also shows how deeply he is part of a larger community again and the context for this experience that he is having, the larger context. And it also focuses things on him that is like, okay, often there's a lot going on in my frames. Here's where everybody's going to quiet and we're going to focus on Seer being deeply expressive. So that is also a moment of distinction for how Chang Chen plays this character. I, I want to hear more about what you thought of the performance because I it wasn't until afterwards, Adam, that I realized this is the same guy who grew up to give incredibly charismatic performances in movies like Happy Together, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, um, Ho Shao Shen's The Assassin. This is like a matinee idol type guy we're seeing, grew up to be that, uh, we're seeing in a pretty reserved, quiet, yeah. pre-teen to teen performance. Yeah, I learned that after I saw it as well and wasn't surprised at all. And quiet is the word. There is a quiet charisma to him. I think what makes his character so fascinating, what he captures with his performance is something I want to dive into a little bit more here with the movie. Cause I think it's, it's just at the heart of the film for Yang. And that has to do with this status, this in-between status that he has in every facet of his life. And if you hear that and you think about it as an actor playing a character who doesn't really seem to have clear motivations or doesn't have something he specifically wants and is chasing, well, that can be tough for an actor to play or that can be tough for an audience to get invested in the character. But there's such a depth to that performance that you do see him as a as a kid who's a little mysterious, who's who's unformed. But that unformed, again, doesn't necessarily mean that he's not someone who makes decisions, that he's not someone who doesn't feel in every fiber of his being human. There, there's just a humanity that he, that he captures that makes him, I think, someone we relate to and empathize with. And like I said, I want to get in a little bit more to that, that in-betweenness in a moment. But what I want to say about that scene, you're right, that's probably probably the most ostentatious scene in the movie, the camera following them and the band playing and that comedic beat. But what struck me about it is the restraint Yang has where everybody in the room, all those musicians hear it and you know, they're all paying attention, but they just go right, right. on with their playing. <laughs> and so did the characters in another movie, that would be a moment where everybody in the room would break out laughing. Sure. And they might even point to that character and mock him a little bit. And life kind of just goes on with these little dramas or these big dramas like that playing out. I'm going to give you another example of that here in a minute. But that is a moment where he finally comes out of his shell. He finally actually expresses himself as opposed to being someone who seems as if he's trying to process constantly trying to process what he's experiencing. He finally lets it out. But what makes that moment so great is really the 
culmination of it. It's the it's the scene that we get in response to it later in the film that I think is the sweetest moment in a movie, which otherwise I wouldn't describe as being sweet. I understand your point about preciousness, and I think that word applies. But yeah, this isn't a rose-tinted romantic look, nostalgic look back at his past. The moment that comes closest but feels so totally earned, and, and why it's so powerful is because it's so earned, is she rejects him in that moment. He makes this bold proclamation in front of the whole school, the band. Doesn't matter. She rejects him. Later in the film, they're in that office, like where the doctors and nurses are, and it's just them. And she comes to him and says, remember when you said all of that to me? Well, now, now it matters. I, I need to believe you. Something along mm-hmm. those lines. I need to believe you. I'm going to believe you. And that smile that Chen yeah. <laughs> shows is is really kind of overwhelming because we've just never seen right. from that character. Exactly. We have not seen that type of outward display of emotion. And of course, the fact that it seems to be tying together that moment earlier, and she as a character is now attaching herself to someone else and to a bigger idea than herself. This idea that that he really could be there to support her. That's That's what makes that scene so striking for me. But there's another visual moment, Josh, with those two characters in that same space earlier in the film that also really stands out to me. And I'd say that it's subtle because there's not a lot of movement to it, but it's clearly a rhetorical device cinematically for Yang. It's not a moment where he's just letting the scene unfold. They're having a dialogue, those two characters, Ming and Sir. And as they exit the frame, he actually just keeps the camera on the white school wall Mm -hmm. so you see their shadows reflected and they're not deep shadows they're they're light you you have to kind of really look closely to make them out but you hear their voices you hear the conversation they're having and you do see enough of an outline of their shadows to understand that they're talking to each other and then the camera moves as they move and reconnects with those characters and you know that could have been one of those moments we try here on the show sometimes to ascribe meaning to camera movements or what we think the director was trying to imply. I can only tell you the experience I had watching it, which was it kind of evoked this sense of, I'll use this word again, used it at least once on the show already, the universality of these types of moments and exchanges. How many other characters, how many other men and women, young men and women, just like these two characters have over the course of time in that school and for the end of time, through the end of time, we'll have those types of conversations with each other between those walls. It it became, again, almost something a little bit ghostly about it that, that heightened that whole scene in a way that maybe I wouldn't have felt if I was just watching them talk to each other. Yeah, I think that's right. And it allows a certain amount of privacy too, mm-hmm. which I think the distance of the camera is crucial as well. By placing us a little bit further away from these characters, maybe some viewers would complain we lose out on intimacy that I would rather yes. have if the camera was right up on their face. But I found in the context of the rest of the movie, moments like that and other ones, it gives privacy to these people who are very private. I mean, the, yeah, we get a sense in right. general, the family particular, Sears family are private as well. And so it's culturally fitting in a way, but also fitting for allowing us to allow them those moments, which allows the moments to feel more authentic. That's how I experience it. 
yeah, no, I think that's a very astute reading of that scene. I mentioned that in-betweenness that resonated with me here. And I think this gets back to why I keep using words like ghost-like and why something that otherwise seems prosaic otherwise in its presentation takes on something more profound. I wouldn't compare this movie to Mirror in the sense that it doesn't it doesn't have that same dreamlike logic to it, but he does capture the ephemeral nature of childhood in a way that I think any of us can relate to, but also in a specific way that only people of his generation could could really feel on a on a deep level. And I think at the heart of it for me is how upended and impermanent everything is for these families. Even the title of the movie suggests something transitory, a brighter summer day. It's a reference to a line in an Elvis song, Are You Lonesome Tonight? The line, does your memory stray to a bright summer day? But summer doesn't last. Summer is always going to give way to fall. Brighter even, the addition of er to make it brighter suggests a longing for something that can't quite be reached, that you're always in motion towards or hoping for. And then think about, Josh, all the ways that the idea of transition or being caught between worlds is baked into every single aspect of this film and and to their lives. Taiwan as a sort of purgatory, it's, it's a stand-in for the mainland from which the parents come, but it will never be home. It will only ever be a simulacrum of home. The movie doesn't directly say that. You just feel it. You feel it in everything the parents say to each other, every interaction, every emotional beat they have with each other. The homes themselves, the physical spaces, we find out aren't Chinese. They're not Taiwanese necessarily either. They're all these remnants of Japanese rule Mm -hmm. in Taiwan. So again, we have in the spaces they inhabit this sense of displaced identity. And then of course, what is adolescence itself, but the transition between childhood and adulthood. And he, Shao Sir and his friends, they're between these two gangs, the little park boys they're more closely aligned with, their rivals, but he's not actually part of either one of those gangs. So he's straddling those two worlds. And then he's in night school. Night school itself is this other in-between. It's like, hey, you kids, you, you literally didn't make the list. You don't yeah. get to go on this path. You're not going to be groomed for success. We're not going to bother with you. You get to go here instead. You don't have a future, but we got to put you somewhere. Mm-hmm. We're going to put you in night school. And when the father is taken by the secret police, and here's another moment. Notice how life just goes on for the family. Right. It it's has just to. Understood. It's just understood that this is part of their lives, that they will probably never be able to escape. They don't even fantasize about escaping it. They don't know where he is. They don't know how long he'll be there. They don't know what the consequences will be, but they've done this before and they know he'll probably return. And that that ephemeral, that kind of mysterious nature I'm getting at, that moment when he's released, they've demanded a letter from him that he produces and they say, do it by dawn. There's a sense of finality to it all. And then what happens? The door just opens. I don't think anyone even grabs the no, letter. They we don't see anyone. They don't even look at it. It's just like, okay. Did this really happen? You through, did it even really happen? Yeah. There's something haunting about it where he's just all of a sudden allowed to leave. And 
all of this is to say that when you're you're watching this film and you're thinking about these characters and the the journeys they're on, Mike, can you imagine trying to trying to just live, trying to get through every day, much less try to be happy or try to develop into a productive member of society as an adult when you're in an environment where you're just constantly unmoored? Yeah. And I love that quiet tension or that quiet moment, I should say, that happens between the husband and wife. We were referencing during our Spider-Man talk some of these scenes and exchanges between the characters. When he gets out, when he is allowed to leave, you'd think, well, if that happened to me, I'm going immediately back to my family. I'm rushing back to my family and saying, hey, here I am. I'm okay. What does he do? He goes, he goes to a shop and he, he has some food. He has some noodle and he sits there silently eating. And she, his wife, is out doing some shopping and sees him. And the camera captures that moment where they look at each other. And there's clearly a moment on her face, well, clear to me anyway, that suggests that she is at once kind of shocked and startled and can't believe that her husband is there without her and that he didn't come home promptly. And also complete understanding on her part. And and seeing those characters together, see a husband and wife together on screen acting as if where they're catching each other, almost like they're strangers. That that tension I found really fascinating. Yeah, it's almost as if he he wants to establish some sense of normalcy or routine yeah. before before he goes home. Uh, it's a it's a really interesting moment that you know I'm thinking about that transitory nature of adolescence that you were you were just talking about, and I think this is captured well by sort of a curious visual motif that. I couldn't put my finger on exactly why Yang was doing it, but maybe one na- one reason does tie into this idea of adolescence. And I realized how often lights are employed, are turned on or off, or light or darkness are, is used. Hmm. Sear has that flashlight he steals in the first scene from the studio movie lot, movie studio lot that's next door to the school, and he uses it throughout the film, turning it on here and there. There's another great scene, conversation scene between him and Ming that takes place at the studio. They've snuck back in. All the lights are off except for a light from outside the door coming in, and then he's flickering his flashlight around. Occasionally, it'll fall on her face, but mostly it's just bouncing all around. He has this habit when he goes into rooms of turning the lights on and off. Uh, It's sort of a little tick that he has. Mm. And then also think about the local pool hall, the power outages there, right? It's routinely the power goes out and no one remarks upon it. They just light candles because this is what has to be done here. And I kept thinking about why is this showing up so much, particularly around Sear. And you wonder if it does represent, I mean, when he's flicking the light, it could be, goes back to this idea of transition. Am I this or am I that? Mm-hmm. Who am I going to be? Am I going to be, am I going to make the right decision, the light decision or the wrong decision, the dark decision? I don't think this is a movie that's that simple, but he is making choices. There's an incredible scene I won't spoil where he transitioned from a terrible choice to the much better choice. So the light kind of works that way. And I'm just wondering if it's evoking kids who are fumbling about in adolescence, the dimness of adolescence, Mm -hmm. trying to find an identity of their own. And this clarified for me in another outburst from Sir. One of, as we've said, we don't get many of them, but he's been called in yet again by a school administrator. The baseball bat or whatever. The baseball bat. His father is there as well. His poor father who can't, under, can't fully understand, the father's played by Chang Kyo Chu, can't understand why Sear is getting bad grades, why he's getting into trouble. Um, he's trying to understand this. He's been called in again by the administrator. He's pleading Sear's case. 
and Seer just picks up that baseball bat. There is a light bulb hanging mm-hmm. from a string on the ceiling. It's off for whatever that's worth. And he just smashes it. And for me, it's like, he's seen where this is going and he's going to be active in turning the light out on his future self. It's like this, this option, this road, I'm just smashing it. It's over. And, you know, Yang could very well mean something entirely different by all that. It's certainly a motif and it it does make me think of this idea of transitions and, and adolescence too. I think that's a great observation and you're right. I didn't realize to what extent that's a recurring motif in the film, but is absolutely there. And I would say, going back to my previous point, I think everything you're saying or suggesting is accurate, but also just imagine, at least in the case of that that pool hall, and this idea that the lights can go out any minute and you have to be prepared to turn the candles on and you just don't know when it's going to hit you, how much that goes back to this idea of instability. Mm-hmm. That every moment and aspect of your life is unmoored, is something where you just never have a foundation and know that you're going to get through a day a certain way. They're living with this this fear to the point where they don't even, I imagine, think of it as fear. They're not cognizant of it. They have come to incorporate it into their everyday lives. They just understand that that's what life is. But just because you've accepted it doesn't mean you're not affected by the psychological and emotional consequences of it, of living that kind of life. And that's what this film, I think, is really fundamentally about. You said that it's not that simple, that it's not about, you know, light and dark. No, it's not. But in some ways, Josh, it really is. I think that's one of the central conceits of this film that Yang is, is exploring, is that you've got all this instability. You've got all these ways that characters are stuck between two worlds or in transition or in some kind of limbo, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And yet, the world around them, the society in which they live, is dominated by archetypes, is dominated by black and white thinking, is dominated by the notion that if you're a communist, you're bad. If you ever worked for or dealt with, had friendships with other communists, well, then you are probably bad and can't be trusted either. If you're not on this list because you passed a test and the test doesn't show that you got a good enough grade— You will be put on a completely different path. We've decided your future for you, and this is how it's going to play out. That actually now, as I say, it all ties back to your comparison to Spider-Man as well, doesn't it? (laughs) I guess, yeah. The future is prescribed. But that's really what's happening in this film. It's, It's as if what you hear on the radio is going to determine, if your son's name isn't listed, then yeah, your life in some ways is over. Your your job as a parent is is now shown to be in a negative light and you don't know what's ever going to become of that kid. So this is a film surrounded by him and I love surrounded by archetypes. And I love too, that when they go to the movies, we don't see it, but I recognize the dialogue. It's Rio Bravo. It is, you know, which is, which is another film that deals in those kind of archetypes. Not to say the movie is that simple, but we know who the bad guys are and we know who the good guys are. That's one of the hallmarks of a Western. And so these kids every day are surrounded by, the notion that everything is pretty simple. You break the rules, you're punished, you don't get the good grade, you're punished, etc. This is the way it is. But nothing about their actual lives is that simple. I, as you're describing that, I think those names, the reading of the names over the radio, isn't that how the film ends? Like it's, the credits even begin, yeah, right? And we just end. keep hearing. Yeah, which is a very fitting touch. You need to set aside some time for it, but 
you should see it if you haven't. A Brighter Summer Day. It's currently streaming on the Criterion channel and elsewhere VOD. To check out our full Sight and Sound Marathon lineup, look at all the past reviews from this marathon and others, you can go to filmspotting.net slash marathons. Next week, we will officially put a bow on this marathon, Josh, with our Sight and Sound Marathon Awards. Favorite performances, our favorite scenes, our favorite film, our best picture. Two quick on-air production meeting notes, one for our audience. We need a title. Yes. We almost always take one of your suggestions. So what should we call these awards? What's a through line? What's some kind of common denominator, a connection between these films that makes sense to call out as the name for these awards? And then related to that, Sam posed it. We don't have to decide it here, but Sam, our producer, posted it in Slack and said, hey, usually we do that extra category that's sort of the the defining moment of the marathon. What's the ultimate Betty Davis moment? What's the, the Wong Kar Wai visual, whatever it is? Did you have any ideas along those lines for this marathon? Or because these films are really only connected by almost all being masterpieces and all being on that sight and sound list, do we not need to bother with trying to find that? Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of richness to talk about when we do awards. I don't think we need it. Maybe one of the common denominators is, you know, the discovery of some sort, right? Like, what's what's the discovery? Because these were all blind spots. Hmm. These are all regarded to be masterpieces. So like we that. go in knowing that, right? We know yes. in going how they're regarded. But what for us personally felt like a clarifying moment, sort of an, oh, I get what everyone's talking about. You're pretty good at this, Josh. Oh, thank you. I like I like that idea, and I think we should go with it. I'm going to say, on behalf of Sam, he also approves. I know he <laughs> Okay. That's our show. Well, if you would like to continue the conversation with us, you can connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter. We're also on Letterboxd. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. If you would like show t-shirts or other merch, just head on over to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. You can be part of that support by joining the Film Spotting family over at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early. You can also get it without ads. Plus, you'll receive a weekly newsletter and monthly bonus shows. May's bonus show, we had guest Brett Merriman, long, long, long time listener, join us. Also, the winner of the Film Spotting Family Madness Bracket Challenge. That's how he got to join us for the 1998 draft with categories. I did it. I recorded it. I'm still not sure I understand it. <laughs> yeah, we look back 25 years ago, the best films of 1998. This bonus show is well over an hour. You're going to get your your money's worth for being a Film Spotting family member. I can't wait to see how the voting emerges, who our listeners think had the best draft. With the added wrinkle of the categories that we all had to pick a blockbuster, we all had to pick at least one Oscar nominee, an action slash horror film. We had different categories and those boxes did make it more interesting. Let's put it that way, more mm -hmm. interesting and not, not as simple as the draft would have been if we were just picking our five favorites. And I think it will be a very fun listen for our audience. We pulled it off. We all managed to fill those slots. How well is up to you? Of course, not only do you have the potential to access those monthly bonus shows, which is live right now in your feed, that 1998 movie draft, but 
we also give you access to the Film Spotting Archive, the complete Film Spotting Archive. Some highlights that connect back to this episode, Josh. 709, Into the Spider-Verse. That's when I recommended that film. 711, just a couple weeks later, top 10 films of 2018. Didn't make my list, didn't make your list, didn't make Michael Phillips' list. That means it made Tasha Robinson's list. I think her number four film of that year, Into the Spider-Verse. More recently, number 872, we did a Sacred Cow look back, 20-year anniversary of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Yes, great film, definitely holds up. If you go back all the way to episode 21, Sam Van Halgren and his deep abiding love for Spider-Man 2, that came up in July 2005, our top five comic book movies. And if you wanted, I don't know why you would, but you could go to episode 159 and hear me and Sam praise Spider-Man 3. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we liked it. Sorry. I think that's okay. Is that is that terrible to like Spider-Man 3? I don't know. I feel like it's one of those that everyone just ridicules now, and neither of us liked it on the same level as Spider-Man 2 or Spider-Man sure. 1, but we we went for it. If it makes you feel any better, I also am a fan. Okay. Filmspottingfamily.com is where you can get access to all those member benefits and all of those shows. In limited release out this weekend, the new one from Abel Ferrara, Padre Pio with Shia LaBeouf as a monk entering his ministry in post-World War I Italy. In wide release, The Boogeyman, a new one based on a short story by Stephen King. That stars one of my top five Chris's, Chris Messina. That's true. And you can also see and should see Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Next week, we will close out our Sight and Sound Marathon with our awards, title, TBD, feedback at filmspotting.net. And we will share our top five LGBTQ plus movies in honor of Pride Month. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.